Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, along with my colleague Michael Jonas. We're joined by Tom O'Brien, the founding partner and managing director of HYM Investment Group. Tom stopped by to give us an update on what's happening at Suffolk Downs, the horse track straddling Revere in East Boston that is being converted into a new mixed-use neighborhood consisting of 10,000 units of housing, along with new offices, new retail, a new hotel, and 40 acres of parkland. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Bruce. Good to be here. Thanks, Michael. So give us a quick update on on what's going on with your project, where you stand. So we purchased the site in uh, May of 2017, and we've been engaged in a two-year process to uh, try and seek the approvals and and begin the the development of the site. Um, The site itself is about 161 acres, and the approvals will allow for about 16 million square feet of development, which for us, the most important part of that is about 40 acres of of open space, as you said, and about 10,000 units of housing. So we hope to begin the project this year. We're excited. This year, mm-hmm. 2020, and then 2020. would be uh, finished in phases over a long period of time? Yeah, 16 million square feet is a lot for a project. You know, certainly for Boston, it's a, it's a very sizable project. So it will probably take us between 15 and 20 years to build it all out. Uh, but the first phase, we'd like to begin, you know, as quickly as possible. We've already, for the first uh, buildings that we've identified in, in uh, right by Beachmont Station in Revere, we've already selected architects, and we're anxious to get going. And um, how much of a problem is is traffic going to be at this? This is what everybody in Boston talks about these days, congestion. Mm -hmm. And so you're building a neighborhood in phases, as you pointed out. But how big of a problem, and and, and just for those who may not be familiar with this site, it's bracketed by two blue line stations. And I'm just sort of curious, though, is is traffic one of the chief concerns as you go through the review process? Well, you mentioned the key to the whole transaction for us, the, the key to the whole site, which is we actually have two Blue Line stations that are directly connected to our site. And that's perhaps the most important part of this for us. So we we see this as what's called a transit-oriented development site. It's, it's really a classic transit-oriented development site because we are so close and so connected to the Blue Line. And even more importantly, the Blue Line is a very unique line among all the different lines in the MBTA in that the Blue Line actually has capacity. Um, you know, if you if you're a red line rider, if you're an orange line rider, if you're a green line rider, um, you know that those those trains are very full each morning. But the blue line today has actually a substantial amount of capacity. And even more importantly, the MBTA owns 14 blue line train sets today, um, but they only run 12 a day. So there's two more train sets that can be put into service, you know, whenever the MBTA needs them. That's a very unusual, it's kind of a luxury for the other lines. There's no backup trains in the red line. There's no backup trains in the orange line, as an example. So our intention is to try and uh, do everything we can to direct as many people as we can onto the blue line uh, to get to, uh, back and forth from the site. But we certainly acknowledge that people still like to drive. And so we'll make substantial transportation improvements along 1A and the whole uh, that corridor along the North Shore. That's been an area that, frankly, hasn't been invested in very much by MassDOT for decades. So we'll do a lot of that work ourselves. We've committed, actually, the overall infrastructure budget for us for the entire site is about $337 million. Uh, and a significant portion of that will be spent on roadways and blue line improvements and things like that. You know, I've, I've read some of the uh, discussion around traffic uh, mitigation or improvements along 1A, and as in in, in many cases, there's always this question about whether the improvements help with traffic flow or do they kind of induce more demand. Mm-hmm. And I know there's been some concerns about, you know, how much more can you kind of, you know, how many more cars can you cram onto 1A? 
you know, and this kind of relates to a question that happens with a lot of development, and that is, like, how many parking space, spaces do you allot per unit, mm-hmm. and can you sort of shape the direction of the development, you know, by setting a lower number and, and sort of create, you know, more transit, you know, focus, you know, at a certain point, I guess you're kind of, you're going to kind of go against what the market wants, and it becomes not feasible, to go lower in terms of, of how much you restrict parking. I mean, that's the new watchword in, in urban development and transit-oriented development. How do you sort of wrestle with that and deal deal with this question about how much parking to provide and the concerns people have that if you add more spaces, you're going to get more cars there? Mm-hmm. For us, we really don't, don't want to overbuild the parking. Parking is actually um, not a very good business. Um, building new parking is very expensive, and uh, the revenue from parking doesn't really cover the cost of, of building um, new garages. So our preference is to build much less parking than, you know, we otherwise might. But as you point out, Michael, you still need to uh, build a basic number of spaces in order to be competitive in the marketplace because people still like their car. Uh, there's two big drivers on a mixed-use site like this. First is uh, the condominiums that you build. So, so we'll build rental units and we'll build condominiums. And 10% of our units are all units, by the way, 10% of our units will be dedicated to senior housing as well. So that, that actually helps us a bit on the transportation and the, and the parking, but it also helps us build a true mixed-use community. So, uh, But what, what drives it, though, is the condominium owners have a very high expectation that there'll be at least one space per unit for the condominium owners. But for the rental units, what we can typically do is build less than one space per unit because the rental units, oftentimes, people will not own a car. And there's lots of good opportunities for people if they need a car. They can rent a car. They can, you know, they can Uber. They can, you know, whatever they need to do from that perspective. And we certainly, as I said earlier, want them on the blue line. But acknowledging that, you need to have some uh, uh, spaces there. The other piece of that is is the big driver is if we can uh, select a, or find a, a commercial office tenant or a life science tenant, those office tenants typically have a certain requirement for parking, and that's usually a function of per thousand square feet of space. So we'll be you know less than a space per you know per thousand square feet of space, but to be competitive to get that company, we're going to have to have a certain level of parking you know associated with that. But we don't want to we want to build as little parking as we possibly can on the site because it's it's as I said it's not a good investment, and frankly it defeats the purpose that we originally purchased this, which is to encourage more and more people to be on transit. That's our that's our key goal. You know, we've been, you've been calling it the site, and I called it Suffolk Downs. What are you calling them? You know, when people move in, what are they going to call this neighborhood? Do you have a have you thought about that? It's so big. It's 161 acres. Um, so for us, you know, we've looked at it from a variety of different perspectives. The the section that's in Revere is at Beachmont Station, and that neighborhood is is called Beachmont. Uh, and Beachmont is a terrific neighborhood in Revere, filled with um, um, a lot of great families, a lot of great history that's been there, uh, terrific commitment to schools, obviously a beautiful beach in Revere as well. So that neighborhood clearly kind of calls out as as Beachmont because that's you know that's sort of uh, the existing name. And then at the other end, you know, we think frankly we'll continue to call the entire site Suffolk Downs just because it's. It's a very recognizable name, so so why drop that or why change that? But we do uh, also acknowledge that at the Suffolk Downs T station, there's an opportunity to kind of create a new plaza or perhaps a new you know section there. So we've started to call that Belle Isle Square as a as a function of Belle Isle Marsh, which is a beautiful marsh right across the way on the other side of Bennington Street. So we think that you know kind of makes sense as a name. So it'll be at least three names, we think. You know, the, the, the section that is the bulk of it would be Suffolk Downs, then we've got Beachmont and uh, Belle Isle Square. So seems to be catching on, at least for now. 
And Tom, the I've, I've read that this is, uh, as far as the Boston uh, development review process goes, the maybe the largest project they've dealt with ever. Hmm. Um, the, the, the size of it and the scope. So I just, I mean, there's not really an, exactly a model for it. I mean, in some ways, um, you know, maybe you'll be setting the model. The closest thing that, that people talk about is what's happened in the seaport. And as you well know, a lot of the reviews of how that, the planning proceeded are not, are not altogether favorable mm-hmm. of, uh, I mean, what lessons do you take from the seaport and, and what do you say to people who worry about sort of, uh, you know, another version of that unfolding there that people are going to look back and say, oh, we blew a chance to, to, to really do this right? I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, from the process perspective, we've we've really um, embraced community engagement during this process. So over two years, um, our team went back through my schedule just to kind of look through what we've done. Uh, and we figured I've done 461 different meetings across two years. So we've really embraced community engagement and really uh, worked very hard to make this a really strong process. I, I think, um, you know, uh, that would re- really be widely acknowledged. Um, we've also done a lot to try and bring um, groups that have traditionally been underrepresented in, you know, in those processes. So we've done uh, a tremendous amount to translate all of our uh, publicly filed documents into Spanish. We've uh, been on Spanish language television and radio. We've held Spanish language uh, only meetings. We've done dozens and dozens of of, of that uh, that work. Um, the you know so so really for us what it begins with is is that process of, of engaging with people and helping them feel comfortable about it. But then there's a couple of other watchwords that I, w- I would say through that. First is um, we signed a project labor agreement. So, you know, for us, that kind of comes back to um, if you want the place to be something different, if you want it to be more grounded in Boston, and if you want it to be a place that is welcoming to all, then you should build it from the get-go in a way that involves um, uh, uh, a variety of opportunity, particularly for women and people of color who, who may not have had opportunities to be part of the building trades. So we, we signed a project labor agreement, and the building trades really shared these goals with us in terms of, of increasing participation among women and people of color in the, in the trades. And so we really want to make sure that we build this from the beginning with people from East Boston, people from Revere, and women and people of color who you know, you know may not have been uh, as well represented in the past in the building trades. So that's a key part. Second part is, you know, we dedicated 25% of this uh, site to open space. Um, And so uh, that's a significant chunk that yields 40 acres of open space, and it it helps create a place that we think is very public. And we're designing and thinking about the entire site with the open space in mind from the first. So rather than perhaps in the seaport where the open space was kind of an add-on or something that was pushed onto a developer as something that maybe the developer didn't want to do, we're we're embracing it from the beginning. And so that's a a key piece for us. Um, So, you know, 40 acres of open space, well-designed, very public, very, very open. We've also made a series of other uh, commitments. Um, we're we're going to have 10% of our retail will be uh, with local retailers. Um, that's a, a key piece for us. That ends up, you know, particularly with regard to East Boston Revere, a lot of uh, Latino-owned businesses, um, you know, can can find their way onto our site, which we're really excited about. We want the retail to be very local and something that really is much more recognizable as truly Boston. Um, and you know, there's a variety of different ways that we've tried to approach this to make this a very welcoming place. I would also add, too, from an affordable housing perspective, our approach is very different than what's happened in the, in the seaport. Um, in the seaport, a lot of the affordable units were, were um, kind of built off-site elsewhere. So which ended up in the seaport was, you know, there's maybe 7% or so of the total housing stock is, is, um, uh, is, 
is affordable. We're going to build all of our affordable units on site at Suffolk Downs. That's a key hallmark of who we are as a company. All the different projects that we've done to date has always have always involved that. Um, and in addition to that, we're going to have 10,000 units of housing on a site that is smaller than the seaport. So the seaport's maybe 200 to 300 acres. There's only about 6,000 units total of housing there. We're going to have 10,000 units on 161 acres. So we really want this to be a community. We want this to be a mix of people with seniors and affordables and you know, open space and all that. So we're, we're starting from the get-go to try and take this in a, in a different direction. On the, um, the percent on the units themselves, I think you've mentioned earlier 10% will be going for elderly people. Yeah, 10% of all units, market, you know, and affordable will be seniors, yes. And then how much will be affordable? 13% of, of all the units built on site will be, in the Boston side, will be um, affordable. Then we've also committed, we've been working with the mayor and other elected officials, Councilor Edwards and, and other folks, to increase the total number of affordable units to 20%. So we'll take, uh, we'll build 13% of our total units, so that's about uh, 930 units will be built on site. This is the, the most affordable units that have ever been built by any project in, in Boston. And then we'll do another 500 units to a total of uh, 1,430 units. And those 500 units will be produced with a, a fund, kind of a housing stabilization fund, that will allow the city and local nonprofits to purchase and preserve as affordable housing uh, units in East Boston as well. So we'll end up producing 20% affordability across the site. So, and then uh, with balance of the units, do you then have to, I'm just sort of seeing a lot of these luxury towers going up all around Boston. Will your high end go way up in the stratosphere like a lot of these uh, places we're seeing? I mean, we're, we're certainly not the Back Bay or, you know, or, you know, the, the more expensive parts of, of Boston. So I don't we don't see us as the high end luxury. I mean, honestly, we, we see this site as as kind of more of a moderate income site. That's that's sort of where we are. I mean, we're on the furthest end of East Boston and we're partly in Revere. So, you know, we're not we're not we're definitely not the Back Bay. Um, that's not what we see. I would say, I mean, the, the key thing to understand on the housing market is, it's very costly to build these buildings. You know, the, the, we're building a building in downtown Boston right now, and uh, that that the cost of that is six hundred seventy-five thousand dollars per unit to build that tower. Um, so it has become very expensive to build housing in Boston, uh, and that's a big issue, really big issue. But what we're trying to do here, with the combination of the project labor's um, you know agreement that we've put together, together with our approach in terms of how we've designed these buildings and what we've thought about, we're trying to deliver these units at less cost than downtown. So we'll probably be. 40% less cost uh, at our site than, you know, downtown. Hmm. $675,000 to build a unit downtown. Yes. And is that a luxury even, unit? or That's not even today's price. Because remember, we, we've... You started we've that... Two years ago. Right. So we locked in those prices two and a half years ago. Um, so today's price is higher. It's, it's, it's a big issue for us in the city right now. I mean, I, I know that people are anxious because it because housing costs so much. If you're a renter, you know, you're being asked to pay more and more of your income to pay you know, to pay rent. But the problem right now is it's very expensive to build these units. Right now, this this may be a little shocking for you guys, but from our company's perspective, um, new high-rise rental housing in Boston does not pencil out, doesn't underwrite. Um, it's become so expensive. So it's it's really hard to see where the housing production process is going to go from here. Wow. So, and why, spend a little time talking about why that is. Why is it so expensive? Uh, is it just labor costs? Is it 
materials? What, what is it? It's not only labor costs. I mean, it, it's um, labor plays a, a piece in it, but it's it's also materials costs and land cost. Um, land cost has come way up. Um, right now, the from our perspective, the only way to kind of make rental housing work, and, and remember, in in the housing market, if you're going to build a large building, you know, you, you can either build a condominium building or you can build a, a rental housing building. And Rental is actually um, relatively easier to finance because there are institutional lenders and institutional investors who will invest in that. So pension funds and life insurance companies and people like that will do that. If you want to build a condo building, that same group of investors won't participate in that because they don't. That's not a business that they want to be in. And so condos are very difficult to finance. Um, so, but for rental housing, which has been more of the product that has been produced, the 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 big challenge is land price has gone up, construction costs have gone up. And as a result of that, the only way to make it work is if you combine it within a mixed-use project that has a commercial and life science component. And the commercial and life science market is so strong right now that you essentially take some of the value from that commercial or life science building and use that to subsidize the cost of building the residential building. If you don't have that mixed-use, if it's just a one-off residential building, it will not underwrite. Yet at the same time, Tom, I mean, all we keep hearing is that the solution to our housing affordability problem is production. So it seems like we're in a little bit of a tough, tough bind with that's the way out. But you're saying it's become increasingly difficult to do that. That's exactly the point. I mean, that, that's exactly our point. You know, the, one of the most important statistics that I've focused on in the last you know six months or so is over the last five years, we created about 300,000 jobs in the corridor kind of inside of Route 128. Right. So for us as a region, that's a good number. 300,000 new jobs, you know, inside of 128. During that same period of time, we only created 110,000 new units of housing. And that, that same dynamic, the you know, producing more jobs and housing units, has existed for decades here. So we've been underbuilding our housing supply for decades and decades and decades. But, but you're exactly right. That, that's kind of why I'm raising this alarm bell. This is a, this is a big issue. You know, as, as much as people say, okay, you know, we need to do more to build more affordable housing – the issue, and you guys know it as well as anybody, the, the federal government, beginning in the 1980s, get out of the business of creating affordable housing. Even for a period in the 90s when Bill Clinton was president and when President Obama was in office and, and HUD was more fully funded, and we were able to get a, a, you know, some uh, projects done that were, that were really great. Mission Maine was redone. Maverick Square was redone. There were, there were a few projects like that that were redone. Those were all good things. But today, if you look at Congress, I mean, there's no way that Congress and its broken state is going to fully fund HUD. So the federal government's out of that business. The state government only has so much in the way of resources to invest in housing, and the city government only has so much in the way of, I mean, what the mayor did last week in terms of trying to bring new resources to housing was awesome. It was really great and very much needed. But we all need to understand, we need to have a really frank conversation. It's very expensive to build housing, and we need to build more of it at all levels. It's not just affordable. We don't, it's not just that we need housing for people who are in the, you know, say 70% of the area median income range. We need it for people who are teachers and firefighters and, you know, we're, we're not building enough housing. We have to do more of it. It's a huge crisis for us right now. And yet there seems to be a lot of pushback, um, both in a lot of communities to building more housing. Is that sort of, I've got mine, let's not add more. And I know I have a lot of friends who drive along various roads and they're like, wow, they're building housing right, in up, right up to the side, sidewalk's edge and there's no room for anything else. What's going on here? Is, is that the pushback that you're, you encounter? I think there is some of that, you know, because, I mean, we are a very tight, you know, area, region. And so if you think about Boston, you know, Boston, there's not a whole lot of, of sites. And so it is, 
it becomes more and more incumbent on people to try and look at ways where you, you know, where you can squeeze in housing to make it work. And there might be some spaces where you wouldn't have thought it would work, but it, but somehow you can squeeze it in. But I, I'm, I'm just raising the alarm bell. I mean, you know, if we can't keep going. You know, there's a reason if you, if you guys, and you guys report on these things, there's a, there's a bunch of other real estate people who have in the last year or so taken projects that were approved for housing and they've gone back and asked for the approval to convert those housing projects into commercial and life science projects. There's a reason for that because the housing projects don't underwrite. So now we're making our problem worse. I mean, essentially what we're going to do is we're going to create more office buildings, more life science companies that will house more jobs, but we're not building enough housing to house the people who are going to take those jobs. Vicious cycle. Yeah. It's mm. a big issue. And I, and I think the mayor clearly understands it. I, I know the you know number of the elected officials in Boston understand. So I, I think people get this, but I think the you know the broader public really needs to understand. We need to build more housing, and we need to build it at all levels, a lot of it. So a lot of people may not know you personally that are listening to this, Tom. And tell us a little bit about yourself. And I'm particularly interested. You have two brothers, both yeah. both in interesting jobs, both with a history around here. And I know you may not be a total Patriots fan, is from what I understand. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I have an older brother, John, uh, who we, we all, we grew up here, um, our, our family. Uh, my mom and dad are, are retired and live on the Cape. Uh, Anna, John O'Brien, who were amazing parents uh, for us. Um, my older brother, John, was a state senator, uh, served in the state senate here uh, in the 90s, and now is a, a senior executive with a, a utility company based in Washington, D.C. Um, my younger brother, Bill, who's perhaps the, the most famous of us, um, uh, is a football coach. He's the head coach of the Houston Texans. Um, it's funny when when we go to Texans versus Patriots games. You know, we're all in the stands. You know, we we uh, the people will look at us and say, "Well, are you guys from Houston?" <laughs> no, we're from <laughs> Boston. You know, the the head coach of the Houston Texans went to St. John's Prep and grew up here in in Boston, and and so we're you know we're more Boston than many of the players on the Patriots, I guess. Um, so we were in Kansas City last week, and unfortunately the. Texans looked like they had it going for the first quarter, and it didn't work out the way we wanted it. Um, but uh, we're really excited for Bill. So he's he's back at it again next year, and, and all excited. And then then I'm, you know, I've been here uh, in Boston all my life. I, I was the director of the Boston Redevelopment Authority in the '90s. Um, been working in a variety of different capacities for different companies over the last uh, you know 20 years or so. Uh, we started HYM uh, about 10 years ago. It's a really great company. We built a a team that is 50% women and 30% people of color. Um, we work on some of the larger, more complicated projects in town. My wife and I, Patricia, uh, Tricia also had wonderful parents. Um, my wife and I, Patricia, have five kids. All our kids are adopted. They were all born in different countries. So we have a young man who's 24 years old who's from Bogota, Colombia, um, two girls from Guatemala, and a boy from Ecuador, and a little girl from Ethiopia. So that's us. And does HYM, what does that stand for? So nobody ever asked me this question. Um, so we, we uh, our fourth child, her name was Marisol. She was, she was from uh, Guatemala. And uh, when she first came home, she was a perfectly healthy child, very active, beautiful kid. But by the age of three, she had a, uh, it was clear she had a neurological disorder that was undiagnosed. And the neurological disorder caused her to lose her ability to walk, lose her ability to swallow. Mm -hmm. So she ended up being a child who was fed by a feeding tube and lived in a, you know, uh, was in a wheelchair and required, you know, round-the-clock care. My wife was an amazing caregiver for her. Uh, so she died on December 20th, 2008, and just at the time we were starting this company. So when I was starting the company, I had a different name for the company, and I went to my wife. Uh, this is after Marisol had died, and uh, 
uh, and I said, uh, here's what I'm thinking. And she looked at me and she said, it doesn't sound very personal. It doesn't sound you. Why don't you think about it, pray about it, and you know, go back and, and come back. So Marisol, before she died and before she got sick, as her words started to get um, you know, scrambled up, she would look at me and she would say, hold you me, daddy. Um, and so HYM stands for hold you me. Think about uh-huh. Marisol. And she's been a great guiding force in our company all the way all the way through over 10 years. That's quite a story. Sorry. That's quite a story. <laughs> you didn't expect that answer, I'm sure. So <laughs> no, nobody, I was, I was thinking it's abbreviations for something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everybody thinks it's like some name or some, you know, whatever, but it's it's very personal to us. It's it's yeah. really, and it's been an amazing, again, you know, Marisol, we, I, I talk to Marisol just about every day. I pray to her, and um, it's really a, a great uh, guiding force in my life. Well, Tom, thanks very much for joining us today on Thank the podcast. You. And to my colleague, Michael Jonas, I'm signing off. We'll see you next week. Thank you.